Welcome back to Behind the Screens. I'm Simon Burton from Numero. And I'm Matthew Liebman from Movio. Simon, has the turkey gone down or have you still got that big turkey belly happening? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just the turkey that's to blame for my enormous belly these days, Matthew. But yeah, it was a good Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, the father-in-law tucked into not only roasting a turkey, but also deep frying a turkey. Um, so trap for young players there. Keep the, keep the oil hot. Uh, he actually blew a fuse at one point, so the, the oil temperature dropped. He had to get that fixed and, and, and fire it back up, but it was all good. I didn't realise your, your wife's last name was Griswold. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's Stuart, but he certainly has moved on as Clark would to putting on the Christmas lights and up on the roof at the moment. So <laughs> it's quite the, the beacon uh, in Glendora. So we've got a, a pretty big episode. Um, I'm going to speak to Madeline Denono, who's the president and CEO of the Gina Davis Institute, but it was a pretty solid uh, Thanksgiving box office, uh, all things considered. Do you want to kick us off with some numbers? Yes, yeah, certainly. Why don't we start on the, on the global front? Uh, I think if we're looking at the James Bond, No Time to Die, uh, it moved into the third highest grossing film of all time in the UK market. Uh, the cum there is now 130 million US dollars. Uh, and overall, it's nearing 600 million internationally. And nearly 760 million on the the global front, uh, so a tremendous result there for No Time to Die. It continues to to bring in the bring in the dough. Uh, the major release over this weekend internationally, well, there were two of them. There was Encanto from Disney uh, and House of Gucci from Universal MGM. If we look at the global numbers for Encanto, firstly, a total of 70 million dollars. Uh, tick over $40 million of that at the domestic box office and $30 million internationally, which is pretty good, I think, given some of the, the rising fears of, of COVID internationally. Did it get a general international release or are we only talking a subset of markets at the moment? Yes, it was, Matthew. Released in 47 material markets this last weekend for $29.3 million. A solid result then. And then there was Gucci. There was House of Gucci. I know uh, something you've been looking forward to, to seeing. I'm Gaga for Gucci. Uh, you're Gaga for most things, Matthew. I know you love yourself a bit of Adam Driver as well. So right up your alley, this one. Um, came in slightly higher than expected, I think, with a total of $13 million from 40 international markets, taking the global cum to 34 million dollars there was an additional 21.8 million dollars from the domestic box office over the five-day holiday weekend um, so good release for, for house of gucci why don't we take a deeper dive into encanto in the u.s in terms of its audience over there we saw that this was if there's such a thing a middle-aged kids film it's older skewing definitely than something like clifford the big red dog it doesn't go all the way up to a spider-verse and the most common titles we saw were frozen 2 which, aside from being the whole Disney family, uh, kind of makes sense. It was the Thanksgiving film, two Thanksgivings back in 2019. Uh, we also saw Coco, Ron's Gone Wrong, Pixar's Onward, Ralph Breaks the Internet, Adam's Family 2, Toy Story 4, and Spies in Disguise. You know, if I take those top four titles, so Frozen, Coco, Ron, and Onward, uh, and use them as the benchmark for uh, Encanto, we can see that there were slightly more infrequents coming along. And maybe this is a reflection of more returning families as more of those 5 to 12 year olds get their vaccines and the families are comfortable coming back into cinema. 
we saw more transactions with three or more tickets and that would suggest it's more family than say Coco which um, some of those Pixar titles you don't necessarily need kids to go along and see and it was reflected also in the age demographics where we saw a really strong outperformance in that 2 to 11 age group. Of course looking at domestically alone uh, we did see strong outperformance amongst Hispanic audiences it was 32% versus 22% overall but it wasn't as skewed as Coco which hit 36% on its opening weekend. So we'll see how that holds going into the coming weeks. Uh, there aren't too many G-rated films off the top of my head over the next couple of weeks. So hopefully it's got some legs in it. Yeah, that's extremely encouraging, Matthew, to hear that uh, a number of families are, are returning to the to the movie theatres in, in North America. Uh, in contrast to that, what did the audience for House of Gucci look like? Yeah, look, this, um, this film did have an opening weekend that includes a number of female-led titles and what I call glam titles. Uh, number one, Star is Born, so Lady Gaga um, overlapped there. We had Bombshell, Spencer, Last Night in Soho, which I finally saw last weekend and really rates as one of the best films I've seen this year. It was a cracker. Um, on top of that, we had Rocket Man and Bohemian Rhapsody. We also had a couple of director-driven titles, and no surprises for people who followed Ridley Scott. Last Duel was in there, as was Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in America. So that mix of, of um, female-skewed story and director-driven um, movies. We did see a combination of um, upscale, star-laden dramas, and Thanksgiving seems to have helped encourage some of those frequents back again. And we saw that 71% uh, of those who went and saw Gucci visit on average less than 12 times a year versus 54% for the benchmark titles. No surprises it outperforms amongst females, but maybe not as much as you'd think. It was 53% versus 45%. And there were a couple of um, twin peaks of age spikes. So first of all, you had an outperformance in 18 to 35. That might be driven by the cast and Lady Gaga in particular. But the content and the whole Gucci side of things saw an outperformance of the 45 plus. Simon, there was one other wide release this weekend, uh, Resident Evil Raccoon City. How did that look at the numbers? Uh, nearly $9 million for the five-day weekend, taking us all back to the PlayStation days of the late 90s, uh, Resident Evil. Yeah, look, I can't believe how old it is. The first of the movies is 20 years old. Even when I looked at the last installments, the prior one, ironically called The Final Chapter, came out in 2016 and was four years before the one before that. So I, it was a little hard to even benchmark the prior installments given the, the age of the franchise. We did get, when we looked at the audience overlap, films like Antlers and Halloween Kills, Venom, Ghostbusters Afterlife, and The Last Resident Evil in 2016, as well as uh, Eternals Candyman Last Night at Soho. Uh, the frequency is close to the benchmark. 36% of people who went and saw Raccoon City visit at least monthly versus 41% for all moviegoers. And then there was a very strong outperformance amongst males. No surprises given the video game pedigree of the title, especially amongst those aged 18 to 34. Uh, that represented about 29% of the audience versus 19% for the benchmark. So, Simon, there was one limited release uh, that came out this weekend, Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. It's getting a lot of 
great buzz. Um, how did it look in the numbers? An extremely encouraging start. Um, the largest limited release uh, screen average that we've seen in quite some time, nearly $84,000 from the four locations that it released in this past weekend on 70 millimeters. Seems to be another nail in the coffin to that Variety article that was talking about platform films being dead with Come On, Come On looking strong last week and this one looking insanely good this week. Yes, certainly enormous numbers for Licorice Pizza, Matt. Uh, moving on to this week's interview with Madeline Donono, President and CEO of the Gina Davis Institute. Today's guest is Madeline Donono, who's been President and CEO of the Gina Davis Institute for the past 12 years. The Institute was founded in 2004 by Academy Award winning actor Gina Davis and is the only research based organisation working with the entertainment industry to create gender balance foster inclusion and reduce negative stereotyping in family entertainment media. It does so by analyzing representations of the six major marginalized identities in film, television and advertising. Those identities being women, people of color, LGBTQIA+, and people with disabilities and older people, those aged 60 plus. As president and CEO, Madeline leads the Institute's strategic direction, research, programs, advocacy, amongst a range of other responsibilities. She's an executive producer of the award-winning TV series Mission Unstoppable and has a storied prior career working for Universal Studios Home Entertainment, The Hallmark Channel, Nielsen Entertainment, and Bay Entertainment, and On The Scene. Welcome and thanks very much for your time, Madeline. Thank you so much. Madeline, the Institute takes a quantitative data-driven approach to its research, and I've read you have two tools to evaluate content, both pre- and post-production. Can you explain what those tools are and what it is they exactly evaluate? Absolutely. Uh, we have had the privilege of working with Google probably since 2010, 2011. And in working with them, they said, you know, the way that you are conducting, you know, your coding and your analysis requires not only human experts, but can be very time consuming. And we wonder if the introduction of computational learning and machine learning could help you in any way, shape or form. So back in 2013, we were awarded a Google Global Impact Award. And with that funding, we actually were able to automate some of what we were doing by hand. And we found uh, the ultimate partner with Dr. Sri Narayan, who runs the sale laboratory at USC Viterbi School of Engineering. And what we were able to do is create something affectionately called GDIQ. What does the mm -hmm. GD stand for? <laughs> inclusion quotient. And what it allows us to do is to automate uh, the representation of, say, gender images, uh, along with screen and speaking time. And so that gave birth to GDIQ. We're also looking at other feature sets like age and, and a variety of other things. But in addition to that, then we'll use our team of, you know, PhDs and experts to look at the other dimensions that you mentioned body size, LGBTQIA, you know, all these other things that you just can't capture and recognize with machine learning. And so that gave birth. But here's the thing, as you can imagine, no one's going to send us dailies, uh, given the sensitivity to IP. So that tool really became more of a auditing tool for people to see, oh, how are we doing? Are we improving? And then, so because of that, we started thinking about what is the best intervention we can all have, right? And that's really with before things get made. 
Well, what does that mean? It means looking at a script. Mm -hmm. And so our friends and partners at USC Viterbi had a uh, IP patented textual algorithm. And we said, you know, we want to go in this direction. We want to create something that could be used for diversity, equity, inclusion purposes. And that gave birth to something called spell check for bias. And what we have found, I can only speak for the US, but what we have found is in the last three to five years, we've seen a shift on how major entertainment companies are addressing diversity, equity, inclusion on screen, mm -hmm. which is a different work stream than what they're doing in terms of hiring practices. And what we found is that these very sophisticated individuals have been placed in new departments inside the business unit. So you now have diversity, equity, inclusion people in the TV unit, in the streaming unit, in the gaming unit. And so with that, now you have other people putting eyes on material, being part of the green light process, being mm -hmm. part of the review process, giving notes. And what we found as you know, our tool was a way for them to very quickly understand what is the composition of the script purely from a diversity, equity, inclusion standpoint. Are their characters speaking? Okay, yes. Are they described? How are they described? Do they fall into the dimensions we look at, like gender, LGBTQIA, disabilities, et cetera, race, ethnicity? And and break it down from there. And then, you know, if there are characters that are contributing significant dialogue and they're not described at all, because in film school, script writers learn, don't describe every single character. Mm -hmm. Guess what? That could be an opportunity to infuse or consider diversity, equity, inclusion without invading the story arc, without infringing on the authentic voice of the story, without checking boxes either, but how authentically, if something's happening in the 21st century, clearly there can be abundance of very different types of people. And so we have found that to be extremely useful. And we've been, we've been very, very fortunate that we've been piloting that with NBC Universal across every division and some others, which I can't name because they haven't been as public as our partners at NBC Universal. And it's it's proving to be, it could be a pretty good, you know, intervention. And so that's how we've been using these tools, not to have a tool for the sake of the tool, but is it in service of the goals of our partners? And if so, great, because as you know, the way that things work, it has to be something that can be organically, authentically, and automatically embedded in the creative process, because if it adds more time, then it's something that's going to fall by the wayside and not be useful. Yeah, yeah, that's terrific. And being a data nerd, I love that that sort of quantitative research base. And there's no doubt that the Institute's work and its goals are noble and necessary. But can you talk about how impactful it's been and how you measure the success of that impact? So what we do is narrative story, narrative culture change work. We focus on the world of make-believe. And when you think about influencing societal 
beliefs, behaviors. Mm -hmm. That's the hardest thing to do. But we have found that our approach, because we're working behind the scenes in Hollywood versus trying to really engage and direct our energies at audiences. And so in the short time that we have been around, you know, we have hit some of our key goals. One was, can we achieve gender parity for female lead characters in the largest grossing films out of the US, which Mm -hmm. in 2020, we hit that for the first time. Can we achieve gender parity for female lead characters in the top rated Nielsen's children's shows, which we demonstrated that we could achieve that in 2019. And then because we didn't focus on film at all because of the way COVID has impacted film, we really looked at television and we looked more broadly at the top rated cable and and broadcast programming in the US. And we achieved gender parity for what we call secondary and minor characters for the first time in history. So those were goals. And now for us, A, how do we take that forward? How do we stabilize that? And also when we put an intersectional lens, how do we make sure that it's not just progress for overall female characters, but how do we make sure there's progress for BIPOC female characters? How do we make progress for female characters who are 50 plus, which, you know, by the way, single digits always, even though you know, women 50 plus are a very large part of our population. Absolutely. And cinema going um, subset as well. Exactly. So a lot more work to do. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm an old film programmer. And one of the things I noticed back when I scheduled movies was that if a kid's film had a boy in the lead role, its box office was generally stronger than if there was a girl in the lead. And I hope that's still not the case. But what it suggested was uh, girls were happy to go and watch boys on the screen, but not the other way around. What do you think's at play here? Because especially at such a young age, the responsibility can't solely be at the feet of the children. So there's a few things at play. One is, yes, parents are going to take their kids to see whatever's coming out. And the girls will, of course, watch, you know, whatever. But you have to think about if there's only one female character in a film, whether it's a lead or co-lead, what is the depiction of that female character? Is she glittered out and pink and purple and has no purpose other than be to be objectified? You know, so let's use uh, let's use some examples. Mm-hmm. You know, Brave was one movie that single-handedly contributed to, in addition to Hunger Games, but that's not a kids' movie, to girls' pursuit of archery in 2012, shooting up to 105% in the US. Amazing. Now, Now, what was unique about Merida? She was fierce. Mm -hmm. She was ferocious. She had a sense of agency. She was in control of her destiny. She was an amazing archer. You know, that type of movie is the kind of movie that would appeal to all children. You know, so I think it's not necessarily that boys won't watch a movie with girl because any boy can sing the theme song from Frozen. And there isn't a boy child out there that can't fully go into chorus on that. But what is the character? What is the female character? And is she interesting? And that's where I believe our partners have been Mm re-engineering and reimagining 
their female characters to give them more, more dimension and to give them, you know, more appeal so that boys and, and the parental imprint on boys don't think of it as just a girl's film. You're right. It's almost get rid of the adjective. It's a great story with great characters. Don't do this, the gender stereotype around that. One of the things that Movio does is our, our purpose is to connect everyone to their ideal movie. And we break that into two steps. And the first is to find the target audience. And the next is to reach them with a message so compelling they come off the couch and into the cinemas. And the way we do that when we target that audience is we don't really focus on demographics. I mean, our, our throwaway line is we don't care if you're an 80-year-old woman seeing F9 or a 15-year-old boy going to Downton Abbey. It's how you spend your time and money that counts. They're proxies for your taste and your propensity. When it comes to reaching them, of course, we need to know who they are and how to reach them and what the message is that resonates. But I'd be interested to get your take on that from the objectives and goals of the Institute, you know, in terms of trading off behaviour for the targeting and demographic profile for the messaging. So for us, our focus is to make sure that when women and girls are consuming content, whether they are women and girls of colour, whether they have different identities, whether they may have a, a disability, that they see stories that reflect their authentic selves. Mm -hmm. We want to see a full range of skin tones yeah. when it comes to depicting people of character. We want to see natural hairstyles that are authentic with that culture. Uh, we want to see women 50 plus who are having robust lives, they're mm -hmm. having romantic lives, they are leaders versus being sickly or alone. Um, and so that's what we wanna convey so that there is something for everyone mm -hmm. and people can see themselves reflected you know, on screen. And, and that's what we really focus on more than who are we specifically targeting? Because if you look at traditional targets, it's 18 to 49, you know? Yeah. Um, so we don't look at it that way. It's just, are we reflecting the world and the population um, in a way that can be inspiring and aspirational? Because yep. for example, you know, women and girls right now are 51% of the population. Well, if it happens to be a film about the year 3000, right? There should be globs and globs of female characters <laughs> running around because it's the future. You know what I mean? You don't have to be relegated and baseline against the population at the moment yeah, uh, yeah. when that film comes out. It feels then that the point about the targeting is separate to your objectives, but complementary. You talk about authentic selves. The example I gave of an 80-year-old woman seeing F9 sets aside the stereotyping in the seat as much as you guys focus about um, overcoming stereotypes on the screen and being more representative. So uh, different but companion piece in focus. When my mom turned 60, she turned to my father and said, I want a Porsche Boxster awesome. instead of a necklace of pearls. And my father just took a beat. <gasps> okay. And my mother loved nothing more than whipping around town in her Porsche Boxster and having all these young guys wave mm -hmm. to her. And, you know, who would think that this woman in her, you know, 70s and 80s wanted to whip around in a, in a Porsche Boxster, but there she was. So, you know, not saying that Porsche will now start featuring women who are in their 70s driving around in their Boxster, maybe they should consider it. But nonetheless, I mean, again, it's just debunking that myth and stereotype.
hundred percent. And linked to that, you know, there's this, this sometimes a stereotype that the minute you hit 60, all you want is a small foreign language film after decades of watching action films. The authentic self you talk about that you don't flick a switch and become some old stereotype just as you pass some sort of threshold. One of the exactly. things I wanted to ask you is that most of our podcast listeners are cinema exhibitors. And that means, of course, that they're responsible for showing the movies, not for the production decisions themselves. I wanted to see if you had any practical steps that an exhibitor could help further the Institute's objectives. Well, I think there's two things. The social imperative, everybody knows, but it's a business imperative. And I think that's been a little bit slower for people to recognize, and particularly with traditional foreign sales agents mm. and certain exhibitors is that there's money being left behind. Uh, and as Mobio has demonstrated that if you bring it, they will come. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, we have seen when we just look at box office together that, you know, if there are diverse co-leads and diverse casts, it will generate the most money ever that you can imagine at the box office. And so, there has to be a broader range of portfolio when thinking about how to achieve box office, how to get people, particularly post COVID out of the house and come back, who has discretionary income, who has time and how do we serve their audiences? Mm. One of the benchmark studies we had done prior to working with Movio is we looked at uh, 10 years of the most successful films box office wise out of the US. And at that time, we found that female centric films generated 55% more at the box office. How do you ignore that? I mean, you just can't ignore that. Yeah. And when you look at movies like Black Panther and mm -hmm. Wonder Woman and some yeah. of these others, you know, so, so I think exhibition is getting that, that these things don't have to be relegated to you know, 30 screens, you know, mm -hmm. you can put them mm -hmm. on thousands and thousands of screens and they will perform. So, so I think there has been an evolution on thinking about, you know, exhibition and what gets placed, where does it get placed? How often does it get placed? That's great to see you're starting to see some moves there. Now, upfront, I introduced you as um, one of the producers or executive producers for Mission Unstoppable, but you were also executive producer along with, with Gina Davis in a feature film called This Changes Everything, a documentary. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that, why you were involved in that particular film and um, you know, what, how it found its place in the market, how it resonated. Absolutely. And just a selfish plug, it's on Netflix, people. We were approached by a filmmaking team led by director uh, Tom Donahue, who is an award-winning documentarian who learned a lot when doing a feature film called Casting By, which was all about the casting couch. And with that awareness, he started thinking about discrimination in Hollywood in a broader sense. And he was introduced to our work and um, he had already raised all the money. He was moving forward with the documentary, but then he approached Gina and myself to say, look, I'd really like to center your research around this. Would you like to be a part of it? And we thought, isn't this amazing? Here, this guy raised all this money, is going to make this movie and has approached us and made sure that the crew was female and had other female directors shadowing him and all this stuff. Anyway, so it was a great way for us to introduce this idea in a very broad sense about discrimination in Hollywood going all the way back 
to the beginnings, you know, of Hollywood all the way forward and looking at, you know, what's happened on screen and having many accomplished actors and producers talk about their challenges, their experiences. Uh, we also showcased a number of female directors who legally had proved that there was discrimination as well as, you know, all the things that were happening behind the camera and level set it in the data. It's been quite a big eye-opener for people who aren't really familiar with the term, you know, driving gender equity uh, and inclusion in on-screen media and discrimination in media. And, and it's been a great way to explain kind of what the issues are in this kind of format. And it's been, I believe it's been very helpful to, to elevate the conversation outside of the inner circles of Hollywood and out there to mainstream, you know, consumers who are making decisions about things that they watch and making decisions on what their children are watching also and really putting another lens on representation in media and what are the kind of images that you want to support? What are the kind of portrayals of women and girls that you want your children, your boys and your girls to, to consume? And what do you want them to think about that? That sounds like a, a terrific and worthwhile watch on Netflix, as you said, and looks like it, it brings people from the earliest days up until the time it was released. If I could ask you maybe to cast your eyes into the future in the nicest possible way, can you see a day when the Institute could be redundant? Oh, absolutely. 10 years from now, I hope I'm on a beach somewhere drinking a pina colada with Gina and all the great people we've worked with and that, you know, uh, we've stabilized and systematized, you know, this work. So yeah, absolutely. Well, given the metrics you gave, the, the goals you've achieved in the last three years, I'd be guessing you might be on that beach maybe sooner than 10 years, the way you guys are going. Uh, yeah, I hope so. Hey, look, Madeline, I've had so much fun talking to you today. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, you don't need me to wish you luck going forward, looking at how much momentum you're having in Hollywood. So just all the best with your, your future endeavours. And we hope to be able to, to partner with you again uh, sometime in the near future. We love working with uh, Movio, so let's cue it up. And before we wrap up this week's podcast, just wanted to highlight that Spider-Man No Way Home pre-sales went on sale in the last couple of days. Uh, I believe bringing down a lot of ticket selling sites in the process with some of the, the demand, which is extremely uh, promising for, for that release in a few weeks time. Uh, pleased to share with our audience that the pre-sales in the United Kingdom are currently two and a half times those of James Bond No Time to Die at the same time, so about 16 days prior to release, tracking it two and a half times in the UK. Um, and moving over to North America, they're at about 2.2 times that of the last Spider-Man uh, film, Spider-Man Far From Home, which was released in July 2019. Um, so both of those numbers hugely uh exciting for for the guys at sony and for the the industry in general uh with that film releasing i believe it's the 17th of, of december um and varying of market to market depending on your release date of a wednesday thursday or friday so looking forward to, to those enormous box office results coming through in uh, in the middle of december yeah, and hopefully some solid holds for Ghostbusters Afterlife and Encanto between now and then, and uh, then that rush into Christmas. Turning our attention to next week, so we'll go through all the new releases, but I'm also going to play part two of my interview with Adam Posner, who's the CEO of The Point of Loyalty. 
So that was the deep dive we started a couple of weeks back into loyalty generally around the world, what issues and trends are out there, and some insights and hopefully some inspiration for loyalty marketers in our industry that they can take from beyond cinema itself. So thank you, Simon, for another week uh, behind the screens. Thank you to everyone for listening, and we will catch you next week. Movio and Numero are two of the businesses within the Vista Group, the world-leading provider of technology solutions to the global film industry. For more moviegoer insights, be sure to visit movio.co and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. The Behind the Screens podcast is produced by Grace Furness and edited by Patrick Hanna. Additional support from Ryan Preventure, Georgia Culverwell and Christine Rizzolo.